I uh, looked up a story I had heard before and found out a lot more information than I had ever known about this man. There was a man who lived, uh, let's see, nearly 200 years ago. His name was Daniel Nash. Anybody know the name Daniel Nash? Not related to Steve Nash, but Daniel Nash. Uh, Daniel Nash, he was a preacher back in the early 1800s, or late 1700s, early 1800s. And he had this little small church up in the Northeast, and uh, he was doing the best he could. They were building a uh, fellowship hall kind of a situation. And there was some issues and some, some people who liked one thing and wanted one thing and preferred one thing, and so they had a church split. Um, now, that, a church split is something they had 200 years ago. They don't do those anymore, but way back then, they had those. Um, and uh, they, they went off into this other town and started another church. And uh, Daniel Nash really had a heart for the Lord and a heart for people, and he really wanted to reunify the church, even though there was so much anger and division and frustration and so he worked tirelessly t towards this end, and lots of mean things were said about him and uh, what he was trying to do in bringing people back together. Uh, ultimately, they stayed over there and did their own church thing. And then the people who stayed in the church ended up voting him out as pastor because they said he was too old at 46. <laughs> and so they got rid of him. And uh, as you can imagine... Through the whole ordeal of the church split and the things that were said and the getting voted out because he was too old at 46, he struggled a great deal with church and church people. And he continued even still to preach because he felt God had called him to do that. And just because he felt disillusioned or just because he felt dis discouraged didn't mean he should abandon what God called him to do. And so he preached at random places and saw phenomenal things. I mean, hundreds of people getting saved when he would preach. Uh, and then he discovered that he wasn't quite at rock bottom yet. He, he developed this, this disease that they called inflamed eyes back then. Basically what it meant was he went blind. And so there he is sitting in his house not able to go out and do what he even he had been doing, even though it wasn't what, you know, as much as he had been doing previously. I mean, he had a farm and he was farming, but now he really struggled with farming because he can't see anything. Uh, he can't go and preach anywhere. The church had kicked him out because he was 46, uh, too old, they said. Um, and so he's in his house struggling with all of this, all these thoughts running through his head. And he just began to talk with the Lord with a new amount of transparency and honesty in depth. Now, he did eventually regain his sight some months later. And they still don't know, I mean, we can't say today what it was. I mean, they called it inflamed eyes, whatever that means. Um, but during that period of blindness, all he had was prayer. And so he just prayed day in, day out, constantly with the Lord. So that when he re did regain his sight, he was a completely different person. Because now his life was consumed with prayer. Praying the moment he got up, as he went about his farm duties, praying all throughout that, communicating with the Lord, having a conversation everywhere he went with the Lord. Even guys who knew him before and knew him after, remember him before and, and how he would pray. 
And it was as though he were praying before he had the blindness. They said he would pray, but it wasn't like he really believed what he was saying. And after the blindness, it was unbelievable the depth of power that permeated his words as he prayed. Well, he met a man uh, at a gathering one time uh, after his blindness, a man named Charles Finney, who was a preacher. And uh, Daniel Nash and Charles Finney both had a love for people, and uh, particularly lost people, and wanted to see people get saved. And so they developed this partnership that ended up lasting seven years. And uh, Finney said, I will preach if you will pray. And so Finney, Charles Finney would go and, and he would go to a town and he would preach these massive revivals and they would do outside revivals in tents and uh, hundreds, thousands of people would come and they would see salvations in a demonstrative fashion. But they, Charles Finney, as well as anyone involved in the ministry, did attribute part of it to the fact of God speaking through the preaching, but the vast majority of it was attributed to the power of the Lord through the prayer of Daniel Nash. He would come into town days or weeks before that Finney would come and preach. They had decided through prayer, Finney and Nash, we're going to have this revival in this town. And so Nash would show up days or weeks before the revival began and just pray. They would get a room at a bed and breakfast or an inn in the town and just stay in the room, pray and fast until the revival started. And then the revival would start and they would pray all throughout the revival, almost never did Daniel Nash come to the revivals? He would just stay and pray in those rooms. And hundreds of people would be getting saved every single time. But they faced phenomenal opposition as Finney would go and preach. To the point, at one time, they preached in open air, no tent, just the platform they had raised under a tree, and they had a bunch of chairs or people sitting on the lawn. And some opposition uh, from the town some preachers who didn't like this development, this revival going on, but also some people who were dug up in sin didn't like this going on. So they created this scarecrows in the form of both Charles Finney, the preacher, and Daniel Nash, the prayer, and they hung them with a noose above the stage in the tree so that when Finney started preaching, those those noose-hung effigies were there. They lit them on fire during the sermon. Unbeknownst to them, uh, that really drove home the point of get saved or you will burn. (laughs) And they saw even more people get saved. But it got very intense, the opposition. People showing up, throwing bricks into the tent, not caring who they hit, not caring. They would just walk up to the opening of the tent, chuck a brick, and leave. And people would get smashed, and it was terrible. They were shooting guns off into the tent indiscriminately. But they kept preaching, and people kept getting saved. There was one particular town they went to that a a gang of guys had shown up and each night they would stand with hands linked outside the tent to keep people from coming in. And Daniel Nash, again, remember, didn't like to go into these deals. He he just stayed back and he prayed and and that's how God used him in a great way. But he told Finney that day, he said, I need to go in there and God wants me to say something. And he said, okay. And so Daniel Nash got up on the stage and he pointed right at that gang of guys standing outside the tent. And he said, the Lord told me This week, he's going to break you guys up, either through conversion or he's going to take you. And he got down, he sat on the front pew moaning from from just the spiritual agony, and the place was silent. Finney wrote later, 
I really felt he'd gone too far at that point. <laughs> like, you, God's going to save you or he, you're going to die. But I wouldn't have said that. But a couple days after that, the leader of that gang came running to the front at the invitation and got saved. He said, I haven't been able to sleep because the Lord's been dealing with me. And Finney told him, you need to go and you need to share the gospel with every other one of those guys. And they all got saved that week. All attributed to the prayers of this man, Daniel Nash, and the power of God working through it. To the point now, he died. They only worked together seven years, and then Daniel Nash died. His cemetery, or his grave at the cemetery, is at this uh, old forgotten graveyard in New York State. It's behind an old dilapidated auction house. And on his gravestone, it says, Daniel Nash, mighty in prayer, partner with Finney. How would we like to be known as mighty in prayer? You see, today we're going to look at what prayer does. What does it really do? Some people say prayer's not enough. Prayer doesn't do enough. Prayer can't do what needs to be done. And so we're going to look at what does prayer actually do? All right? So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Uh, it's on page 743 if you want to use a Bible there on the pew rack. If you don't have a Bible that you use, uh, take, take that one home, and, and that can be your Bible. Um, don't worry about uh, uh, paying the church back or any of that. We have those Bibles for people to have and use. Everybody needs one, so take that Bible home if you don't have a Bible. Daniel chapter 6. What's going on here in the life of this man, Daniel, is his nation was conquered when he was a child, a teenager. And he was taken as a prisoner of that war. He was taken up to the land of the country that conquered him and put through this brainwashing school. But he wasn't brainwashed. He stayed dedicated to what the Lord had. He stayed faithful to what the Lord wanted. And uh, God used him in a great way, blessed him in a great way. He was raised up in that new country, that new nation as a, 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 an official. But then that nation was conquered by another nation. And uh, that new nation that conquered the nation, that conquered his nation, uh, even there, Daniel was recognized as somebody whose, uh, uh, his God had a special hand on. And so he was promoted to a very high position. Let's look at that. Daniel chapter 6, uh, verse 1. The king of the new nation is called, his name is Darius. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. These are like governors to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. So you had the 120 guys, you know, over different parts, different regions of the empire. And then above them, you had three guys they reported to. So maybe 40 of them reported to each individual one. And those three guys reported to the king. And Daniel was one of the three higher-ups. He was one of the big dogs. Uh, verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So the king planned to create a whole new position just for Daniel. So you'd have 120 guys reported to three guys. He was going to create a new position here where those three guys reported to Daniel, who then would report to the king. But you've got to imagine how everybody felt about this. Remember, Daniel was a POW. 
He was not a native to their country. He was supposed to be a prisoner, but he had been elevated now to be in charge of these guys who they thought they were the heir apparents to these positions. Uh, so look at verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the only thing they could say about Daniel was he was too faithful. There was nothing in his life that they could say, well, this, this is a shortcoming. This, this is an area that uh, he's corrupt. It almost implies that all those other guys are corrupt, that they all have these areas in their lives. They're kind of shocked that they can't find this in Daniel's life. They said the only thing that he does is, is, is be faithful to the Lord his God. He follows the law of his God. He prays all the time. So we have to come up with something against him to, to bring his downfall in relation to how he worships his God. Verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O Darius, king, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, every culture, even cultures today, but especially back then, had very specific and unique ways that they had capital punishment. Uh, I mean, like the Romans in the crucifixion. Uh, here in, in uh, the Babylonians, they like to throw people in a den of hungry lions. They like to watch or they like to just listen to the sound and the screams because they were so, you know, messed up in their violent appetites. And so they said, okay, this will be the law. If anybody prays to anybody except to you, O king, then we take them and we throw them in the pit of lions. Just for 30 days, just, no, just 30 days. They need to understand, king, how great you are. O king, they need to understand how great you are and that we all owe our loyalty and dedication to you. And so the king is hearing all this. Uh, verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So all that Darius is listening to is, is them really butter him up here. We know you're the greatest king. We know everybody needs to think you're the greatest. And so we need to put it into law for 30 days. Everybody needs to treat you as the greatest. And so the king's like, man, that sounds like a good deal to me. Bring me the piece of paper. I'm going to sign that deal right now. And this country, the Medes and the Persians, who had conquered uh, Babylon, I mean, they're in the city of Babylon here, but they, they had a specific policy that once a law was signed, it could not be undone. Not by anybody. Not by any governor, not by any king. If it was in law, it was law, period. And nobody could get it out of law. I mean, you could have all your lawyers come and try to attack it and try to find a weak spot or a loophole, but if the king signed it into law, it, it, it was that way until it expired. And so for this, it would be 30 days is when it would expire. Uh, look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. 
He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, it's that last phrase that really strikes me. As he had done previously. So he goes home, knowing this law had been signed, and he goes and he sits, kneels, before open windows in his house. Upstairs open windows, so everybody can see him. And he prays three times a day, as he had always done. He didn't change anything about his spiritual habits, about how he worshipped God, about how he prayed to God. He did what he had always done, and he prayed. But he didn't just pray, look at what he did. He gave thanks. If you're in this situation, and a law is passed that says you cannot worship the Lord your God the way you do, you're going to keep doing it? When the punishment is being thrown into a den of hungry lions, maybe you would shut your windows. Let's <laughs> like, keep this on the DL. Let's just, I'll still do it, but I'll just be quiet and nobody can, they can't see me anymore. I'm still do, I mean, God knows. God knows, Mom. I'm still going to do it. But at that point, you're also changing your habits in accordance with the law rather than continuing to worship the Lord. Daniel didn't change anything. But in the same regard, he didn't go and protest. He didn't kneel down and pray in the lobby of the king's palace. He didn't kneel down and pray in the king's throne room and kind of throw it in the king's face because, again, that also would be changing his habit to make a point. And the point wouldn't be about praying to his God. The point would be making a point between him and the king. So he would be using his habit of prayer to communicate with the king and not the Lord. Daniel's not going to do that. He's going to go and he's going to do it like he always did. He's not going to change a thing. And so he does. He goes and he prays and he gives thanks. Gives thanks to his God. Gives thanks. What do you think he's thanking God for here? I mean, thank you, God, that it's illegal to do the thing I'm doing right now. Maybe it's a thanks for the opportunity to continue to worship the Lord under great difficulty. To offer him this. Or, or that the Lord would consider him worthy to struggle like this. You know, there are many stories of martyrs in years past being burned at the stake, praising God that he considered them worthy to offer this sacrifice. So Daniel's offering thanks before his God as he prays. You see, what, what prayer does is prayer brings peace through thanksgiving. Prayer brings peace through thanksgiving. Peace. As we are thankful. This is in scripture. Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So give thanks in all circumstances. Every single circumstance give thanks. You don't necessarily have to thank him. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It says in the circumstance give thanks. Thanks for salvation. Thanks for God's presence. Thanks for God's peace. Thanks for God's strength. Thanks that God is still with us. And so Daniel obviously is in all circumstances. It's illegal for him to pray as he is in front of those open windows for everybody to see. But he's still giving thanks because he knows, even though this was written by Paul many, many, many years later, it still holds true. Giving thanks in all circumstances is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In addition, Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and then this will happen. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So through prayer with thanksgiving, the peace of God will come. That's a promise in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You do this, you pray, make your request made known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will come. It will guard your heart. It will protect your heart and your mind that will be constantly barraged with anxiety and struggle. But prayer is like a, it's a, it's a built-in defense. It's protection as you pray and communicate with the Lord. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. And Daniel did that. He, he prayed with thanksgiving. Because prayer brings, brings peace through thanksgiving. Look at the next verse there in Daniel chapter 6, verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So they, they find Daniel as they already knew he would be. I imagine them, you know, standing watch in the alleys right outside Daniel's house, waiting for him to kneel down in front of those windows. Daniel kneels down and they, they usher in the police, banging down his door, grabbing Daniel off his knees and carting him before the king. Verse 12, then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And so they now drop their bomb. The thing they've been waiting for, the thing they've consp been conspiring with, they've been working for this moment. And they said, your, your pet, you know, your, your favorite, Daniel, He's been disobeying this law. And the king also realizes he was tricked by his own trusted advisors against Daniel. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. So the king is, is, is pouring over the laws. He's pouring over the bylaws. He's pouring over you know, ancient Robert's Rules of Order. He's trying to figure out a way to get around this law that has been signed, how, the, how they can get Daniel out of this. Because the king loves Daniel. The king loves him and does not want this to happen. Uh, verse, let's see, 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Now look at that sentence. This king is offering here a prayer on behalf of Daniel. May your God deliver you. May your God save you. You continually serve this God. May God save you. 
this pagan, unbelieving king is offering a prayer for Daniel here in verse 16. Look at 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, and nothing that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So the king is limited by the law. I mean, the law said you've got to do it, you've got to bring him, you've got to throw him in because he disobeyed it, and you can't change the law, king. The king is limited by the law. But what's fascinating about that to me is even though Daniel was subject to punishment by the law, Daniel was not limited by the law. Daniel did not allow himself to be limited by the law. And so he continued to worship the Lord and was willing to accept the consequences for that. As Charles Stanley says, you obey the Lord and leave all the consequences to him. So Daniel was doing that. But those consequences for Daniel meant, meant death. Meant death. And the, but I love that moment with the king. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. It is a, the king, remember the king had been working all day long to try to find a loophole to get Daniel out of it. And then he offers this prayer of hope, this, 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 this hope that God would deliver Daniel. His God would take care of him and bring him out of that den of lions. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you, save you. But you know what else the king does? Look at verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So the king had prayed, and now the king was fasting. We know about Daniel, two things, about his character and about his spiritual discipline. From the book of Daniel, he does it multiple times. Daniel constantly prays, and Daniel fasts multiple times. So what we have here is Daniel's influence has reached even the heart of this unbelieving king. So that this king has now prayed and is now fasting, emulating the habits of Daniel. Because that's what faithful prayer does. Faithful prayer is a faith multiplier. Faithful prayer, when you are, are praying in faith, genuine, absolute faith, it is a faith multiplier in yourself, but also in those around you whom you influence. The king knew Daniel did his prayer constantly. The king knew about Daniel's fasting practice. It left his mind as these guys were praising him, and he signed this deal into law. But the second they said, well, Daniel's doing it, he said, oh, no, that's right. My friend Daniel never stops praying. And it brought out in the king this unique thing where he offers that prayer and he fasts that night. Look at verse 19. Next morning. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? He's desperate. Are you still there, Daniel? Is the prayer that I offered, did it come, did, did God answer it? Verse 21. 
Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Now there's lots of pictures, you know, paintings, famous paintings depicting this moment. Daniel standing there with his hands, you know, petting the lions like they're, you know, kittens. Uh, we don't know how it could have been. Maybe Daniel's laying in there like, you know, they're keeping him warm like a blanket. Or, you know, maybe the lions are on one side, the angel's holding them at bay, and Daniel's on this side. We don't know how it played out. We can ask him when we get to heaven. But he says, yes, your prayer that I would be delivered has happened. God answered that prayer. You see, because that's what prayer does in God answering the prayer. And, and God doesn't always answer the prayer exactly like we would anticipate. God answers the prayer as would be best for his plan and his purpose. But what prayer does, as we saw in the life of the king, this, this unbelieving pagan king, is it changed him. Because the king goes on and he makes a decree. No one can ever speak, ever, against the God of Daniel. And remember, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, so it's set for all time until their nation goes away. He says, Daniel's God is God, and no one can undo that thought process. What prayer, Daniel's prayer life, the king's prayer about Daniel, does what prayer still does today. Prayer changes lives. Prayer changes lives. Prayer changes your life as well as the lives of those you're praying for. Because what prayer does is it brings in, you know, prayer uh, prepares our hearts and makes us ready for the Lord's presence in us. As well as bringing the Lord's presence into those we're praying for. His, his, his uh, uh, intervention, his hand of healing, his power. Prayer, I have a quote on my wall uh, from a powerful prayer from the 1800s uh, that says, prayer can do everything God can do. Because what prayer does is it's asking for God's direct intervention in whatever moment, in whatever experience you're going through. Prayer changes lives. And it never stops changing lives. You can pray and you can say, well, I prayed one time and the thing didn't happen like I thought it would happen. But just because it didn't happen in that moment like you thought it would happen in that moment doesn't mean it's never going to happen. The book of Revelation tells us in God's presence are these, are these massive bowls that he collects our prayers in and they're always in his presence. Even the one prayer you offered way back when that you forgot about, God didn't forget about it. He cherishes our prayers. I've seen God answer prayers in the, before the sentence is even out of a person's mouth. I've seen a person healed. I've seen God take years to answer an individual prayer because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. I've seen God straight say no. But God's answers to prayer always have a purpose, always have a time, and I guarantee you, they're always filled with power. Even his no is filled with power. Because that means there's something else. There's something else that's taking place. There's something else that's going on. And God's plan is always best. God's plan is always better. Prayer changes lives. And in my case, prayer always changes me. 
I mean, I'm praying for this or I'm praying for that. I've got my journal there on the front row. It's got a bunch of stuff in it, but right in the front of my little journal, I've got pages and pages of prayers, prayers that I'm praying and the date I started praying them and the date God answered them. Well, and then a Y or an N, whether it was a yes or a no. And, and, and I pray that every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, to see God's movement, God's involvement. Some things that are written in that deal, that journal, when I get a new journal, I copy them down because I've been praying it for years. I'm not going to stop. Jesus told a parable about, he called, it's the parable of the persistent widow, the woman who goes to the judge and makes the request over and over and over again, and the judge ends up giving in to her, uh, and he was a wicked judge. And, and Jesus says in that parable, how much more the father who is good, how much more will he answer his children when they come to him? And so we come to the Lord and we pray and we ask him for intervention. We ask him for strength. We ask him to, to, to take care as he would. And then the king not only demonstrates prayer, mimicking Daniel, he also demonstrates fasting. And fasting Fasting works alongside prayer. It works in tandem. It works hand in hand with prayer. And it's all throughout Scripture. Nehemiah fasts and prays. It's in Psalms. It's in Psalms, uh, Psalm 35, Psalm 109. Daniel fasts and prays. Uh, in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 10, we see fasting working alongside prayer. But the thing about fasting and prayer is it doesn't force God's hand. Like, like you, you can't go into fasting and prayer saying, I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray, and that's going to make sure God does what I want. Again, that attitude right there is all kinds of prideful and not going to get the answer you want. Because you walk in to the Lord, prayer should be about humility. Approaching the Lord saying, I need him. Like, like he's the one who, who knows best. And I need him, the Lord in great desperation, in, in humility, without any semblance of pride, with all the pride sucked out of us. And so we need to pray, and we also need to fast. Fasting elevates our sense of, of, of spiritual awareness. You know, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus fasted at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus spent time in, in, in concentrated fasting, seemingly in preparation for what was to come. And in Matthew chapter 6, he said some very specific things about how to fast. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus said, when you fast, notice he says when you fast. He didn't say if there. It's assumed if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point you're going to do it. And he says it as though it's like a habitual type of deal. It's not like, oh, that one time I fasted in my entire life. It's like on occasion, here and there, when you do it, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have, their, uh, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, he's saying clean yourself up, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what Jesus is saying in that passage, he's saying, when you do it, when you fast and pray, do it in such a way that, it's not, that you're not bragging about it. You see, the, the, the Pharisees and the people back in the day in Matthew chapter 6 time, when they would fast, they would make it look like they were fasting, and they would do themselves up like they're in a bad way, and they'd wear bad clothes to kind of draw attention to they're not feeling good because they're fasting. Someone, are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm just fasting. 
you know, make themselves sound more godly and more holy. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, don't do that. That's hypocritical. Because fasting isn't for other people. Fasting is for Jesus. And so when you do it, when you fast and when you pray, you need to do it as though you're actually doing it for God. Because if you're doing it to be seen by other people, if you're doing it for for any sort of recognition for other people, then that's all the reward you're going to get is other people thinking you're holy and pious and godly. You're not going to get attention from the Lord in that because that is all kinds of prideful. You need to shut that mess down. He says, when you do it, do it in secret. Clean yourself up. Act like do everything you did when you weren't fasting. And the Lord will provide all the strength you need if you're doing it with the heart you need in the moment. And the Lord will provide. And we know from, actually from the book of Daniel, there are more than one kinds of fast. You know, fasting typically is, is you know, when you simply restrain from eating food for a period of time. Um, whether a short period or a long period, you know. In scripture, there, you know, there's fasting for one meal, there's fasting for one day, for three days, seven days, 21 days, or, or the 40-day fast, the Jesus fast. Um, I have, in my own personal experience, you know, the fasting that is, you know, one day to three days, those are the hardest ones because you get headache, stomach ache. If you get beyond three days, it's a little bit different. Your body begins to shift and things begin to change and the headache goes away and the aches go away. Because uh, usually, if you, you know, if you're doing like a seven-day fast, you get to day three and you're like, I'm out. Like, this is hard. And, and you cut it off. I've done that. You cut it off at day three and say, I can't do any more than this. Like, I'm counting down the clock. Is it, is it three days up yet? Uh, but if you push past that, it's a totally different engagement. Uh, but Daniel talks about other kinds of fasts, not just absolutely cutting out food. Still drinking water, but just cutting out food. He talks about other kinds of fasts. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, uh, Daniel uh, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food with the wine that he drank. Therefore... He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And then down in verse 12, he says, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And so this Daniel chapter one fast, he's only eating vegetables and he's only drinking water. This is when he was in the brainwashing school, when he first got arrested or first taken captive. Uh, They were trying to feed them all this this very high in uh, fat foods um, to make them more indoctrinated into the Babylonian culture. And he says, no, I'm not gonna do any of that mess. I'm only going to eat this stuff. And the Lord blessed in an incredible way, uh, only eating like this, not eating the meat the king put before him, and only drinking the water. And then in Daniel chapter 10, he does it again. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, so 21 days. He says, I ate no delicacies. And he defines that by what's next. He says, I ate no delicacies, that is, no meat or wine entered my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks. So it's a 21-day fast that Daniel does here in Daniel chapter 10. And uh, he doesn't eat any meat. So similar to Daniel chapter 1, no meat. And similar to Daniel chapter 1, he doesn't drink wine, which he references in Daniel 1, which makes us believe he's also only drinking water. So he's not eating meat. He's drinking only water. um, And he goes on this 21-day fast. Now, as a church... What we have done the last two years, we have started the year with a 21-day Daniel chapter 10 fast. 21 days. We started the year with that. And we saw God bless in an incredible way. 
Again, like I said a minute ago, that wasn't forcing God's hand, but it was preparing our hearts for what God was going to do. And we've seen as these candles demonstrate, you know, dozens of, more than a hundred salvations. I can't remember how many, 110 candles, 110 salvations in the period of time we've been doing this. Uh, what, it, it, it makes us ready for what God's going to do. It helps us participate in what God's going to do. And so I'm telling you about it now because on January 1, we're going to do this Daniel fast again. And you're willing, I'm asking you to participate. You don't have to participate. That's totally fine. Um, but what it is is no meat and drinking only water. That's not easy for somebody who drinks coffee constantly, like me. Um, I mean, we had some people, and I brought it up one year when we talked about it, who would try to argue, well, coffee really is just water poured through, you know, ground up beans, right? So, I mean, that's okay. And what I said was, uh, well, if, if you're trying to find a loophole, then that's probably a no on that one. All right, because if you're trying to find your way around the fast, then, you, then, then either don't do it or just cut it out, all right? Uh, you're missing the point of the fast. Uh, we've had other people sometimes trying to get around the meat thing and say, well, that's not really meat, you know? I mean, that's, that's fish. It's okay. Um, uh, meat is meat. It comes from a you know, living animal. Uh, and so you, you cut it out, and, it, it, you know, um, that's not easy either. You know, I eat meat at every meal. So it's, uh, but... That's the point, is you're putting your dependence upon the Lord and what he is going to do through you and prepare for you. And so I'm telling you now so that if you want to participate in this deal, you've got like six weeks to get ready, to pray through it. Not to argue with God for six weeks and be like, God, I don't really know about this deal. It's no meat, only drinking water mess. Like, like I can do it as long as I can eat this, like my, my, the thing that I love. As long as I can drink this one deal, you know, if I can, I look forward to it every week. It helps me get through the week. Um, and the Lord will say, my grace is sufficient for you. I will help you get through the week. Uh, I know this because I have argued with him on this. Uh, so I'm speaking from experience. That if you want to participate in this, though, it is life-changing. Life-changing. Um, but we're going to start January 1, and then 21 days later, January 22nd, here in the service, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. So then the first thing outside of water that we drink is part of the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to go and have a church-wide feast. Lots of meat. Lots of meat. And we're going to have some coffee at that feast. Amen. Um, but it, it, it is a, a phenomenal experience. I would encourage you to pray about it and consider being a part of it. Because as we saw Daniel in the life of this king, it has influence beyond you. It can influence those around you who you would think might be beyond reach in their beliefs. Who might never come to the Lord. It might spur something in them as the Lord is doing a work in you. But in the intervening time between now and when we're going to start this deal on January 1, I would encourage you, as Daniel did, without fail, pray. Pray. Not just pray as though you're checking a list off to help you feel good about yourself, but genuinely getting down on your knees and spending time with the Lord. Maybe just for a few minutes, 
several times throughout the day. Maybe like Daniel did, morning, noon, and night. You take three moments throughout the day, maybe just five minutes, ten minutes, whatever, and you kneel before the Lord and you pray, and you get honest and transparent. Maybe the first thing you need to pray is, Lord, help me not fall asleep while I'm kneeling here. <laughs> just be honest with the Lord. And you start to pray for, for some specific things that you may not have prayed before. Maybe you pray for things that you always tried to give God an out. And you prayed for it, but you didn't really believe God would do it. And so you say things like, God, but I know that if you don't do it, that, that's fine. You know, if, if it's not your will. Um, but pray in absolute faith. And watch what God does. Not just with the situation and the experience, but God, watch what God does with your heart over these next few months. Let's just say now through the end of the fast, all right, January 22nd. So that would be the rest of November. So one, two, so two months and a few days, give or take. Two months and a week-ish. Try this out. Try praying throughout the day, morning, noon, and night, and just see what God does with you. You see, I've got this pew here. And if you remember, if you were here a year ago, we, we had this pew up for about two months and a, and a week, give or take. And we posted, we had post-it notes like I do now, and we put names of people we wanted to see come to the Lord. And so I've started calling this pew the praying pew. Because as people put post-it notes on this pew, I would come in every single day and pray over every name that was on the pew. And so we're going to leave this pew up until the end of the fast. And what I want you to do is write on these post-its prayer requests. Maybe prayer requests of things that you thought were impossible, that you were afraid to say out loud. Prayer requests of things you may pray for, but if you have a prayer journal, you don't write them down because you're too scared to write them down. Because if you write them down, they feel real. And you don't want to do that. Because then if God says no, you feel like you know, you're letting him down or, you know, or you're not communicating him well enough or whatever. But write it down and put it on this pew. You don't have to sign it. That's fine. Uh, but I make a commitment to you. Every day that I'm here, I'm going to come in here. After I drop my junk off in my office, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to pray over everything that's written on this pew. All of them. So please make it legible. <laughs> or I'm going to say, God, bless this scribble, like whatever it is. Uh, but make it legible, and we're going to pray over these. And then whenever you're here, you're invited to come and pray too. Maybe you just want to come up in the day, ring the doorbell, and you want to come and pray in the middle of the day. You know, I got 15 minutes lunch. I want to come in and pray. Ring the doorbell. We'll answer the door. We'll let you come pray. Okay? You know, do that. I'm going to write stuff down. I'm going to put it on the pew too. Stuff I've got written in my prayer journal that I've been praying for for a long time, and we're going to pray, pray with great genuineness, pray with great faith, and we're going to see do God, God do some phenomenal things, and during these next two, two months and a, and a week or so, we're also going to have some live stream faith deals, we're, we're, uh, faith in prayer, we're going to pray live on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and, and uh, see what God does uh, through that, we're going to pray the Psalms, we're going to have these different moments over these next uh, weeks and uh, allow God to move us as a church where he would have us move as a church so that we can be, as Daniel Nash was, mighty in prayer. Not just lackadaisical in prayer. Not, definitely not weak in prayer. Definitely not praying because we have to. Definitely not praying just at mealtime. But mighty in prayer. And allowing that God to change us through prayer, 
Maybe like Daniel Nash, God needs to bring blindness to you to bring a realization of the power of prayer. Or maybe you're willing to be used by God without going blind. But we're going to pray. Pray with power. Pray with strength. Pray where God would have us pray. And we're going to come to Jesus and fall before Jesus and allow him to have his way with us. Maybe today you need to come to Jesus for the first time. You need to come to Jesus. You need to decide to follow him. You know, the other day at the, the, the dinner before the RSAC graduation, I uh, shared a devotional about Bartimaeus, who was a blind man, kind of like Daniel Nash. Uh, but Bartimaeus heard Jesus coming by, and he did three unique things while he was there beside the road as Jesus was walking by. He called out to Jesus, he came to Jesus, and then he followed Jesus. And so the question to you today is, if you don't know Jesus, will you call to him right now? And will you come to him right now and stop fighting him, stop pushing him back and saying, Jesus, I'm going to hold you at arm's length. Jesus, I need to get my life together before I come to you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't got to do any of that mess. You come to me now and then we'll get it together, together. You don't got to get your life together now by yourself. Don't, don't attempt that. We'll do it together. And so the question is, will you come to Jesus now? Come to him and believe in him today. If you're watching online, you can make a comment. You can send us a, a, a DM to the church, and we'll get back to you and about you wanting to know Jesus, coming to Jesus. Say, I want to come to Jesus. Anybody and everybody can come, wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, going through. Will you come to Jesus now?